Hello, I'm James Fitzsimons and welcome to The Career Scoop, a podcast all about career progression, advice and experiences aimed at assisting those who are in career transition. Today, my guest is Director and Chief Operating Officer of One Global Bermuda Broking Limited, Killian Whelan. Killian has been involved in insurance and alternative risk insurance markets for over 20 years all around the world. Killian, you're very welcome to The Career Scoop. Thank you very much. Thanks for, for coming on board. And just to jump in, you're in Bermuda at the moment. So you might just share with us a quick overview uh, of your career to date, some of the highs and lows, what you've learned, and what are you most proud of? Sure. Well, um, as James, you're aware, I'm originally from, from Dublin, born and bred, and um, uh, moved out to Bermuda in, in 1996. But before that, it was my first job as a qualified accountant. Um, was with a, a small company in, in Dublin called International Risk Management, which was a part of relatively fledgling, fledgling um, industry down on the docks at that point in the IFSC. Um, at that point, I actually, I, I, hedge fund management was, the, was the, the kind of sexy thing to get into back then, and uh, I knew nothing about captive management but I thought well you know what I'll give it a try for for six months and we'll see where where that takes me and um, so joined I joined IRMG and uh, did, did a couple of years with them and their headquarters was here in Bermuda and um, just one evening uh, we actually had our office in um, in Leeson Street um, uh, kind of down towards the um, Stephen's Green end of it, and I was I was out with my my sister and my brother-in-law one evening, and it was a lashing rain evening, and two in the morning we were looking for a taxi, and we couldn't coming out of the uh, the clubs there, and we couldn't couldn't get one, so went up to the office and to ring a taxi with my sister and and brother-in-law Jim, and looked at the fax machine, and there was an offer for a job in in Bermuda, looking looking for essentially the same sort of position that I was in in in, in Dublin. And uh, I was kind of came at a point in my life, mid twenties, and I thought, well, you know what, could maybe think about doing that for a couple of years. So, um, which club was it, Buck Whaley's or Legs or one of those? Or <laughs> I think it might have been Buck Whaley's. <laughs> okay. Some of our listeners are too young to to know yeah. what that is. So, um, yeah, one thing led to another. So, actually, the um, the person who was running Bermuda office was the person who originally was running the Dublin office. Um, so I knew him and he knew me and, um, he, uh, he, yeah, he gave me, gave me my second opportunity. Um, so I went out and checked out Bermuda for a couple of weeks, did a little bit of training with the person I was supposed to be taking over from and came back to Bermuda. Sorry, came back to Dublin for about a, about a month and then moved back to back over and, uh, in, in May of, 2000 and sorry 1996 and that was kind of the start of life in Bermuda which is coming up to just about my 25 year anniversary now next month um so turned 50 last last month and half of it will now have been spent uh, spent in Bermuda so stayed with uh, international risk management 96 through uh 2000 and my role there was primarily as a, an account manager producing financials and client management and so on. But the, uh, there was an aspect of it that became internally focused where I was given the, um, the role of financial controller. So I was doing the internal IRMG accounts. 
And that kind of, that kind of for me was uh, fairly fairly critical in how my my career developed over the next little while because I wasn't just purely client focused. So I, I got involved in in doing um, internal budgeting, management reporting, dealing with the, the the senior management of the group, both in Bermuda and uh, the headquarters was in um, at that point was in New Jersey. White, uh, sorry, New York, White Plains, uh, New York. And that gave me a, a broader view on the company and a bo- broader view on my experience as well. Um, got involved in some internal audit projects um, and, and just, as I say, widened my, my scope of experience from just being a, a narrow um, account manager, uh, dealing with clients and putting out the monthly, quarterly accounts for the clients. And then in 2000, um, essentially a, a team of us, including um, the boss that had hired me a couple of times, we uh, we were approached by Jardine Lloyd-Thompson, J, JLT. They wanted to get into the captive management business. There have been a few good deals done between our captive team and, and JLT. At that point, IRMG was 70% owned by Swiss Re um, and 70% by, sorry, 30% by the management. So um, JLT wanted in, Swiss Re for some reason didn't want to sell at that point. So JLT said, okay, well, we'll kind of go after the team. So there was teams from Bermuda, Cayman, uh, Singapore, Guernsey, and, and then a couple of people in, in London came across to JLT and we set up the, the Greenfield site of JLT Captive Management in uh, in early 2000. So that, although JLT was a well-established company, the division, our division, had we had nothing. There was no revenue, there was, there was no nothing. So I remember the first day in the office, um, we got this small office on, on Reed Street and uh, myself and my colleague, we went in the first day we were in a kind of old boardroom. Uh, didn't really. We had a computer, and that was it. And we sat down, and we were kind of like, "Okay, well, what do we do now?" Because uh, we didn't have any clients. We didn't have uh, anything in front of us. So it kind of started from there. And um, in two thousand, and so my role at that point to kind of moved to being largely business development and client management. So, you know, we had come across to grow a new business. So obviously we needed the service business as we got it, but the focus would grow the business. So then my um, my day-to-day was going out prospecting, um, a little bit on the road, um, pipeline management, um, moving away a little bit from the nitty-gritty of the the day-to-day account management, um, but still had my hand in that for for quite some time, and then in the, and the business started to grow quite nicely. Um, and then in two thousand and six, um, we started to hit a bit of a bump in the road, um, and and at that point, the person who was leading the Bermuda office uh, left, um, and at that point, I was chosen to come in as um, president of the Bermuda office. So that was a, it was a high, but it was also a low um, in that I was, I was a 34, still relatively green, never managed a, an office before. And as I said, it, it, the business had been hitting a kind of a, a bumpy part 
for about 12 months coming up to that that change so um we had started to lose some people um the the business in bermuda was changing its focus it wasn't just pure captive management the the sidecar ils type thing was was beginning to take off so there was competition coming from other other sectors um so that that's when i um made my first real management role or that, that um when i was promoted to my first real management role um and did that really from 2006 and the role expanded over the next 10 years from not not being just bermuda but in 2010 i was made ceo of of the captive management group which brought in the other islands and then in um kind of 2011 2012 um went out on the road to see if we could build other platforms um so um I led a, basically a project to establish ourselves in, in the US, which we did in um, four different domiciles. We uh, set up an operation in, in Barbados, while at the same time trying to grow the existing operations of Bermuda, Guernsey, Singapore, and so on. Um, so that was um, challenging. Um, a lot of balls in the air to try and try and manage. and. Um, you know, my role really was from oversight of everything, from business development to dealing with HQ and reporting into them, um, driving the business development um, process, um, trying to win clients when you get the, the clients, trying to bed them down, keep them happy, keep uh, employees happy, recruiting our teams, um, a number of redesign of how we operated internally in terms of our team structure and so on. Um, so as you can imagine, pretty much anything that happened kind of at one point came through through my desk. Um, and then, um, so that brings us to kind of like 2015 and it, it was another sort of um, difficult time, I would say, um, which really, it, it, it was, led by changes in reporting lines from myself into London, where um, I was having difficulties to try and achieve what I wanted to achieve. Um, and I felt that um, the progress we'd made in growing over the last, <clears throat> from 2006, and particularly the last five years, from 2010 to 2015, that I was seeing there's going to be a distinct slowdown um, and a hesitancy to be as entrepreneurial as we previously have been. Um, so that, at that point, I was like, okay, probably time for me to just step back and um, reset. So I left, I left JLT at that point um, and kind of just took some time out. And then um, after that, in 2000, and, uh, to actually late 2015, um, I was, it was only a few months, I guess, left um, JLT, I started to assist on a pro bono basis for America's Cup with the um, America's Cup Bermuda side of the operations who were responsible for creating the infrastructure. Um, and I met with the CEO and the chairman. And at that point, they were a very thin team. Um, and I was still on my gardening period from um, from JLT, which was which was for a year. And I said, well, I'd be delighted to come in and, and, and help. So, so they brought me in as 
essentially as an advisor at that point, uh, given it was pro bono, it wasn't an official role. But effectively, I, I come in as um, right-hand man to the, the CEO um, and sat on a lot of the committees, helped drive a lot of the committees um, uh, for, for America's Cup. And then later in the year, as my guardian period was coming coming to a close, um, sat down with the CEO and we agreed that I was enjoying it. He was uh, grateful for what I was able to give to it. And we agreed that I would come on in an official capacity as, as the chief operating officer. So um, came on um, early 2016. That was my the change to the, of my official role and was with them through to the end of the cup. Um, the cup ended in 2000, June 2016. A little bit too quickly for my liking. Um, unfortunately, the, the Americans didn't quite put up the fight everybody was expecting and the Kiwis ran away with it. You might, you, you might just share just for some people who may not might be knowledgeable around what the America's Cup is. And just like, you know, this is not just a couple of boats going around Bermuda. There's like this huge amount of, of investment in teams and worldwide uh, viewpoints that people are looking eyeballs on you. Yeah, the so the America's Cup goes back <clears throat> hundreds of years, uh, the old mug as they call it. Um, and it's um, it, it's a sport that, uh, by its nature, there's a lot of wealthy people behind it. Um, there's an awful lot of prestige to it. Um, and in 2015, the Americans uh, held the America's Cup. They, they, the last staging had been in San Francisco. Um, it is a big event. It is only held, it's not rigidly held like the Olympics every four years. Um, the holder of the cup um, gets to dictate really how the next competition is going to happen. Um, they will decide what, what design of boats people need to use. They'll decide the, the venue and the rules and so on. Um, but when the, the cup here was the second cup where they were um, using what they call foiling catamarans. These were 50-foot yachts um, that, if you've ever seen foiling, they, they literally just come out of the water and they're sailing on two, um, two very thin foils that come down into the uh, into the ocean so they can they can uh they can sail on a 10 knot wind and get up to close to 15 50 mile an hour it's it's incredible the technology behind it um to stage it in bermuda um a bit like the olympics and world cups when they're looking to um to choose on a venue they go out to cities and cities bid um, so there were, I think, initially 12 cities, venues bid to host the 2017 America's Cup. Um, Bermuda were invited um, by Sir Russell Coots, who was the CEO behind America's Cup at that point in time, to um, throw the, their name into the hat. And there was a, there was a lot of scepticism at that point in Bermuda about being able to hold such a major event. Um, but proposal was done. Um, KPMG were engaged as as advisors, so that they helped uh, provide a lot of the 
professional consultancy advice needed at, at that point in time to the Bermuda government to to put together a, a professional and comprehensive um, application. And they went through the rounds and Bermuda went from one of 12 to one of eight to one of four to one of two and um, and, and got the win in, I think it was December December 2014, they, or November 2014, they got, uh, got the win, which nobody was more surprised than Bermuda. Um, and then they had to very quickly try and pull people together. So they established America's Cup Bermuda. There was two, two entities, America's Cup, which is the Russell Cooch, which is the, this is the boat side of things. This is the teams. Um, so they came down and, and um, rented offices and they scaled up very quickly uh, with professionals who have been in the business doing event management uh, throughout all their career. And no more than the insurance industry, the sports industry and the event management industry is also a very small industry and people know each other. So when you're looking for uh, a media person, you don't have to dig too far into your Rolodex when you're in. If I'm looking for an actuary or a lawyer, I know who to call. So America's Cup were able to staff up pretty pretty quickly. And then the Bermuda government decided they were going to send set up a separate um, entity called America's Cup Bermuda, which is a limited, limited liability company. It was separate from the government. Um, clearly, it had um, a board appointed to it. Um, which was made up of um, uh, professionals and entrepreneurs within the Bermuda industry. Um, it wasn't made up of politicians. Um, the CEO of America's Cup Bermuda did report to the Minister for Economic De Development, so that clearly there was a, there was a, a tie-in. Um, but the idea was that ACBDA, as we called it, would be the conduit to uh, link up public and private sector Bermuda entities to work together and also as a liaison for the America's Russell Coots um, America's Cup operations that he could get the service that he needs from a dedicated entity such as ACBDA rather than them trying to go out to individual government departments and so on. So, and it worked, it worked pretty well. Um, but the biggest challenge that we had to start off with was that we had to reclaim 10 acres of land um, to, which was going to be the, um, the staging area, the, 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 um, the village for America's Cup, which was um, done down at, down at Dockyard. And, um, that was as that project was just beginning to come together uh, the, the very initial stages is when I joined and it was a very interesting time. There was a lot of, um, how do I say, there was a lot of sensitivities in the procurement process and which contracts were going to where and to whom and, and so on. So that was something that I got involved with fairly quickly. Um, I was the only accountant uh, finance person so being able to bring uh, my experience uh, of financial processes to bear um, were called on pretty quickly um, so we ended up we we built the I think it was just shy of 10 acres um, and it was a combination of bringing in 
large ships with granite from from Canada um, came in and dumped them into the into dockyard. And at that point, there was also um, one of the cruise liners here wanted to dredge part of uh, the North Shore because sand and silk was building up um, and a massive project, as you can as you can imagine. And we managed to negotiate that they could do the dredging, but we would take the dredge. Um, so because <laughs> they had to put it somewhere. Um, so we managed to get a lot of free free fill for uh, for that deal, which was which was quite good. So when you got that fax after being in Buckwadies all those years ago, you couldn't imagine you were going to be dealing in dredge to, to no. fill, in, fill in a landfill to to in effect to to have the America's Cup on it. No, no, and um, you know as as the planning started to move ahead, and you're dealing with from the side that we were on, you're dealing with uh, the security issues, you're you're dealing with trying to set up transportation plans, uh, you're dealing with the, um, again, the procurement process for, um, for vendors. So we weren't uh, 100% responsible for that because that's more marketing, that was more um, on the America's Cup side of things. Um, but the things that you ended up having to deal with and, and, you know, you had to consider from a security spec perspective, terrorist attacks, um, what's the possibility of, you know, somebody coming in on a ship and there's a bomb on the ship and how do you uh, alleviate um, that sort of threat? Um, it, 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 every day you went in, there was something different. Um, which, having spent twenty years in insurance, it was uh, it was quite refreshing. Um, and you're dealing with the professionals uh, um, at the top of the game in in a professional elite field. And these boats are essentially Formula One cars on water, um, and uh, they're they're immense to see, or were immense to see in in Bermuda over the two years that they were here. So. And then the event itself, when it when it came about, my role sort of had I've changed from the planning to the uh, to the implementation, um, and then to the the running. Um, so my main role during the event itself was being a part of the control center, where you had um, we had CCTV cameras all over the place, um, television screens all over the place. So you're watching from uh, the security aspect to um, health and safety in the village to um, criminal activity in the in the village, making sure that there's um, orderly transition in and out of the village, management of the um, um, of the lift in and out, which was primarily through ferries, um, just by nature of the way Bermuda is built, it's much quicker to get in and out on a ferry than it is, is on a bus. Um, so that the, the ferries operated in a manner that they'd never done before. Um, and there was a big um, concern because uh, politically, the America's Cup was seen as um, the party of the, uh, of the right in Bermuda and the party of the left and the workers unions and so on um let's just say it took a while for them to get on board and you know 
the amount of times there were strikes that were threatened um, to be pulled at the last minute at the most inappropriate time. Uh, I can count on way more than two hands. Um, so you're trying to plan for that, try to mitigate against that, trying to negotiate um, that that event doesn't happen. But when it all came together, actually the you know the the ferry drivers and the and the bus drivers and the Bermuda regiment and and the police they were the ones that helped make it a success um, because they saw the value of it to Bermuda. It was just an incredible event, and they they bought into it. Um, and once they bought into it, everybody was in it to, in it together, and uh, um, and it did did become a, a tremendous success. That's fabulous. What you learned from that, you know, what I mean, there's a sense of 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 um, like stuff happens every day that you you can plan in such a tight you've been used to having plans where you could actually you know the two to three to five year plan this was all a plan every week or a plan every day that kind of would evolve and, yeah uh, yeah how did you change how did you change how did you take that experience to your to your next next experiences what did you learn from it what were the kind of couple of things for you that changed you um I think I, I learned um, I learned the importance of people management, um, the importance of not negotiating, not getting people to do what they don't want to do, but trying to reason that people will eventually come around and whatever you're asking them to do is actually for their benefit, but sometimes it takes a while for that message to, to get through. Crisis management um, is when things start to go wrong to analyze what's really important. So like triage in a, in a hospital. Um, you know, we had, we had some incidences during the, during the event. We had a, we had a super yacht that, um, basically, beached itself on a rock right in front of the um, uh, right in front of the, the the race course, right in front of our control room at the start of racing for a day. I say, well, how do we how do we manage that? And that that had to be made sure it was safe. Then and we need to put it in a, a safe zone around it. But ultimately, it was like, okay, sorry, you're stuck on a rock, but you're going to have to stay there, and we're going to continue on with the with the is racing um and then in the evening when the tide came back in <laughs> we'll sort you out then <laughs> <laughs> who gave the message that um yeah and then there was um unfortunately there was a there was a death um of a of a tourist um one evening um on the water um away from the um away from the event village but it was all part of part of the event and managing the communications with regard to that um you know we had planned for we had planned for what do you do when something goes wrong um and so you had the the media i won't use the word playbook but that's essentially what it is if x y happens here's what we need to do um so yeah i think i, I think i learned um how to step back and assess the situation um more clearly um i think it comes to some of your other um, potential 
discussion topics here is is looking at a stressful situation and figuring out um well first is it a stressful situation am i making it a stressful situation um and how, how best to to manage that so um that was definitely something that i learned um and that you need to keep driving people um people people are quite happy to be led but you can't particularly when we were dealing with um the public sector um if if you set out a plan for people and you kind of shepherd along then it will happen but if you assume for instance coming from the private sector coming from uh, financial sector international business sector where you're dealing with professionals who have gone to college who have gotten qualifications who have a self drive themselves so you you sort of expect people you say can you do x y and z and they will go and do x y and z that's not the case when you're you're dealing with the public sector um and that's not just Bermuda i would imagine that's public sector the world over um uh so it was trying to come up with a plan that you how do you we said to people we're going to do this and here's what the plan is but to actually make them go from we have a plan to then okay go and do it was incredibly difficult and to try and implement a strategy which was essentially going top down because in public sector people listen to the people at the top be it the permanent secretary or the minister or whoever it is and that message has to feed down so we had to undertake a communications campaign across all the various um departments that we were dealing with be it um works in engineering again security um transport community public department of communications that we have all these plans but now you have to implement them and how are you going to do that and then it was nearly like a plan to get the plan done <laughs> but you then had to learn about this yourself because the yeah. audience like anything who's your audience appropriately because like obviously but in the civil service nothing happens in any country but yeah. then again people are used to a certain way of working and you have yeah. to to get them to do to support you you got to figure out how you get the message in across and get them to hear it yeah yeah and and that's that's what we had to do and we that that um urgency started to come into focus in in late 2016 so the event was on in June 2017 we've got the plans and um we've gotten to essentially christmas time 2016 and um i said to the ceo we we have these lovely plans but i'm not seeing who's going to do anything with them and so over christmas week when everybody was was quiet we went around the heads of each of the departments and we sat down with them and we said this is yours how are you going to get this done we'll we'll help in as much as we can but you have to make this happen and and that's it was by making them realize they had responsibility and if they didn't carry out the responsibility the the effects of their not completing their plan will have disastrous effects on the success of of the America's Cup and will reflect on them so <laughs> that's how that's really how you motivate people um that this is your responsibility and you are going to have to be answerable um if you don't implement this so how are you going to do it we can go and get you staff every everybody that 
the word or the, the argument back was always, we don't have the people. We don't have the people. We said, we know you don't have the people, but we can assist. You're also going to have to create resources somehow in, uh, in your department. And ideally a dedicated support because part-time responsibility wouldn't have worked. So we ended up in, in pretty much most departments, there was one person for that next six months was dedicated to the implementation of, of that plan. And then we could at ACBDA, be it through committee members or you have to pay for additional resources, they could give help to, to that allocated person. So it was tagged on uh, and not necessarily all the resources were, were dragged out of the each individual public department. Fascinating, fascinating. And now m- moving on from that, you're you've you've just you're now involved in your third or fourth startup if I can use it, and and then bringing all this experience. Do you want to share with the uh, listeners? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think you 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 discuss about networking, um, and over the years of twenty five years in Bermuda, you you build up a network of people people that you know. So, I was asked to. Uh, assist in setting up um, this current venture, which is um, largely backed and, and run by a lot of my ex-colleagues from, from JLT. Um, so, you know, the, to have received the call, can you assist us set up this new operation, wasn't a huge surprise in that, you know, I had the, had those connections, had that network. Um, and so we started that in, in September of, of last year um, and we got, we got licensed in just before Christmas. Um, but again, to, we're a small operation at the moment. We're still very small. We're, we're, we're looking to expand. Uh, but again, in this environment, it's difficult to, uh, to grow, particularly when you're trying to get people from overseas. But I knew... Um, I knew the people that I needed to come in quickly to help us get set up. Um, and um, thankfully, I, I, you know, I have that network of people because um, it's difficult if you're just, if you're trying to do something and opening the yellow pages and just running your finger down, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> no, no, it, it doesn't. And it's called One Global Bermuda Broken Limited. One Global Bermuda Broken Limited, yes. So um, the essence of One Global is um, they are uh, originally a Lloyd's um, broken, uh, historically a Lloyd's Marine broken house. Um, but with the opportunity in the market uh, that's seen now, um, some hedge fund money uh, behind one global broking, and they've drafted in, as I say, um, some senior people from JLT and some senior people from other entities as well to to make it a global specialist um, broking house. Um, so we've opened our doors here in Bermuda. Uh, we've opened in in Greece. Uh, we've opened in in the US. We're in the post of opening in um, in Latin America, Singapore, Hong Kong, and. I think potentially Australia. So that you know, the footprint is is going out. It's um, it is exciting. It's building from scratch. Um, the way IT has gone, um, particularly in the last twelve months with COVID, 
in, in terms of having Zoom meetings like this, everything being in the cloud, it's much easier to set up a business than it was five years ago from a, from a technical perspective in terms of just getting um, computers on desks that are linked to uh, systems that can work. So currently we're leveraging all the systems that, that London have and you know we're doing, we're doing that through the cloud. So we don't have to create uh, a standalone big server room here in, in Bermuda, which was the old way you would do things. Yeah, each, each um, island would have had its own um, computer infrastructure and the difficulties that, that go with that and the cost that goes with that. Um, you, don't, you don't have that. So it is much uh, more efficient to try and get up um, through the starting gate now than it would have been five years ago. That's progress in the sense of where IT enables in a huge way uh, and more more efficient and less time traveling and all, all these kind of areas. Yeah, of, of, yeah of I have to say, you know, I, haven't, I haven't been on a, a plane, obviously, to go and meet any of my colleagues, um, but with the, the Zoom calls, um, you you still get to see them, you, see, you still get to be able to build a relationship with them, which is different than when you used to just call them over the phone. Yeah. Um, so I know a lot of people struggle with the, the video conferencing. I've, I'm very comfortable with it now, and I actually do prefer it um, rather than the old style picking the phone up. Yeah, it's funny. It's probably muscle memory and, and how people are able to change or evolve. You, you mentioned you, you, you're you obviously going to recruit or, or people for, for, for the organization. Back over your career. What do you look in in the people that you hire? Okay, I take it that they have the ability to do the job. I'm talking about the human. So what, yeah, that, that's obviously the first one that they've got the qualifications. Um, that uh, obviously the experience, if you can get it. I think uh, probably it's possibly a little bit different in Bermuda, particularly if you are hiring uh, from overseas which a lot of the hiring that we did for financial accountants and insurance people was, um, rather than if you're hiring somebody who lives in Dublin and you're, you're hiring them in Dublin. It's a much bigger decision for somebody to take a job here than it is just go down the street um, and take another job in Dublin. You're asking somebody to uplift themselves from their home country, from their family, or potentially they're bringing their family with them potentially with kids as well. Um, so I think a cultural fit to not just the company, but also to the Bermuda lifestyle is, and the economics of it for a particular individual, that do you feel in three years time or two years time that they're going to be happy they made that decision and have been able to um, fit into into Bermuda because it's not for everybody. Um, but you invest so much time and so much money bringing somebody out, you, you have to get it right. Um, it, like I say, it's different if you're in, in, in Dublin, you hire somebody three weeks into it, it's not really working out. You can kind of say they're on a probation, right? Sorry, um, it's not working out. And we go and we look for somebody else and you, you've lost the time, obviously, but you haven't necessarily lost a massive amount of expense so cultural fit 
is is definitely um, one that I would put a lot of importance on and that they understand what they're coming out to. Um, if they're coming out with a family um, and the partner, the husband, the wife, if they're not going to be working in Bermuda, they understand what that means, that Bermuda is only a small place. So it might be fine for the first three or six months, but after a while, when you're not working in Bermuda and given the immigration rules here, you you can't just do something else. Um, they need to understand that, getting the kids into school and so on, so that they realize the just the, the challenge that they're taking on for themselves. And then from a you know a personality, I, I'm I'm looking for somebody, I like people who talk straight. Um, I like people, I want to ask people what their vision for themselves is. Um, and that obviously changes depending on what stage in the, your, the career of the particular person you're, you're interviewing. Okay, that's very simple. And you're happy if someone says, well, I, I don't know, but I'll find out in that sense, that ability. Yes, and that was um, one, of the, one of the phrases that I, that I um, learned in America's Cup. The CEO, he, was, he always said this, he said, um, we know what we know but we need to make sure that we know what we don't know because there's a lot of things we were doing. We didn't know what the answer was, but we knew we didn't. And we knew we had to go and find that answer. Um, it's fine not to know something, but it's important to realize that. Um, so some people can come into a job if you're interviewing them and there's five criteria, they might say, yeah, I'm great at this, 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 and this. They know themselves are not great at this, but they'll kind of just try and blag their way through it. Um, but you should say straight up, I might need a bit of help with this bit. In which case, fine, we can get that for you. We can get you the training. But if you come in and you've, you've, you've blagged your way saying that I'm A star at all five, then it's difficult for you to backtrack. And when you get your feet on the ground to say, actually, I need a bit of help on this one. And then your credibility and people that, oh, what else have they maybe over, 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 uh, over blagged? In, in yeah. 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 So again, America's Cup, um, I, I don't know how many times I said it. I said, I don't know the first thing about sailing, which when you, when you're in America's Cup, people kind of go, well, but I have years of financial and management experience, which is why, why I'm here. I don't need another sailor. Yeah, that's really, really simple. And what, just moving on to another question. So say to that 22-year-old, are you 25, 27, 20, well, 30 years ago, uh, or sorry, sorry, 28 years ago, my maths, what, what, what would you say to somebody coming out of, 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 that might be coming out of the college or they might be coming out of a job, just how they might look at the world and how they might kind of, what, what's, uh, what advice would you give them? Um, I think... Um having an open mind um, with my own experience of up in leaving the family, my entire family and, and coming to a small island in the middle of the ocean. Um, the only thing I, I knew was I knew one person who had given me the job here and I didn't know anybody else, um, but I have an open mind that I was going to give it a try. Um, and I think you, you have to 
realize that you have to make things happen. It isn't just going to fall into your hands. Um, you have to get up there and drive yourself. Um, you have to think ahead, uh, plan ahead. Now, whatever you plan, it'll never work out exactly the way you plan. But at least you have been looking forward as opposed to maybe just drifting along or, or waiting for somebody to be the one to say to you, okay, well, I'm going to give you this job. You have to go out and you have to fight for it and you have to get it. Um, I think also, and this comes with age, I guess, don't, don't sweat the small stuff. Um, and it takes a little bit of experience, I think, to figure out what exactly is small stuff and what is really important. Um, and don't be afraid to, comes back to what we just talked about, don't be afraid to ask a question, even if you think it's a stupid question, that the chances are, if you don't know it, there's a plenty of, if you're in a, you're in a conference room and there's 20 people there and, and the person is lecturing about something and says something and you don't understand it, I can guarantee you there are other people in that room don't understand it as well. Yeah. But who's the one that has the, the courage to put their hand up and say, actually, can you go back and explain that for me, please? And there's things early in my career in, in, in insurance that I didn't necessarily understand. And I, I should have asked a simple question. Can you just explain what this is and how that, how that works? But um, I remember back then thinking, well, surely they'd expect me to know that. So you kind of just muddle on. I have a great friend, a guy called David Mulville, who who has been on on in one of the early uh, um, series of, of of the Career Scoop. But he's a business in Beirut now. But he was company secretary of Riverdeep uh, back in the day, and he he tells a story of being. He's a brilliant, brilliant man, brilliant person, and he's been in New York up and up eight floors with IBM, and we're trying to sell them something. And there was seven IBM people there, and it was David, and so they were throwing presentations at him and they were using acronyms. And he yeah. said, I don't know what that is. So he put his hand up after the second presentation. Can you tell me what that BAC is? And he said he never saw seven lads and they were all, 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 all men uh, looking down at their shoes. Uh, nobody could tell him. So he said at that stage, the penny dropped. Don't be afraid to, don't be afraid to ask. And uh, just like you've shared there. Uh, is that, that's great. How about just a couple of more questions Killian, mentors for you, or, or were you aware of the concept of mentors when you were arrived on Ireland, or or or, or, or have you have you uh, have you you've probably been a mentor, been a, a senior C-suite in companies? What's your thoughts around that for a younger person on the way up? So, I I, I don't think so. I've mentioned my 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 boss um, gave me the first opportunity, hired me in Dublin, and then back in Bermuda and. He kind of led the um, team to uh, set up JLT. I think he was he was probably a mentor to me. Um, but you know, did we? We didn't. There was certainly nothing official in that. I am your mentor. I am going to sit down and give you the guidance to get through life. But what he did was, you know, he he recognised. Uh, capabilities in me and gave me opportunities which then I 
I, I, I either asked for them or he, he said, are you interested in it? And I then went and grabbed it. Um, and I think with, without what the opportunities he gave me and the guidance, and when I mean guidance in terms of um, teaching me about my role um, as we went through it, again, in a, this is just how it happened as opposed to it was a, you're my, there's a plan, you're my, met, my mentor. Um, so yes, yeah, so I think I did. I did have a mentor in him. Um, and I've tried to do the same in, to people that have either reported to me directly or, or indirectly if they've needed some, some advice. And I would say particularly in, in, um, in the last number of years when I left or when I went back to JLT and there was the, um, the, the buyout by, by Marsh of, of JLT where a lot of people had to consider what their future was. Where, what's the right decision um, in a very quickly changing environment. Um, so I spent pretty much a year trying to guide, I won't say mentor, because um, again, I don't think I was officially a mentor to anybody, but I spent a lot of time trying to guide people to try and work through what the right answer for them was. And for some, it would be to stay, for some... It would be to go for some, it would be give it a shot and see what happens for three to six months. Um, I would, that was a, if I'm honest, that was a very tough period. Um, there was a lot of stress. Um, people, people leaving every day of the week. And how do you deal with that and the effect of communication to the clients? Um, so, so yes, that was a stressful time, but, you know, I, and I learned a lot from it as well in how to deal with those situations. Um, you try to be as objective as you can. Um, and very often you have to give advice that is good for the person, but it's not necessarily good for what you're trying to achieve. Um, so, so it, over the years and in America's cup, there was a couple of the employees in the, in the small team there that, um, helped along in, in how they managed their position, um, how they were able to grow in their position. And, and then, yeah, back to, you know, before that, um, when, you, when you have people who report to you, the main goal is to help them, A, get their job done, <laughs> but also help them develop them, themselves. Interesting. You mentioned stress there within the, Kind of that 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 little job you did between the America's Cup and your your new job your new job now stress how do you I mean how you like you're you're <laughs> at, at top of organizations a lot of moving parts a lot of travel uh, how do you process stress yourself I and mean, it's good and bad stress I understand I understand that I'm just curious what, have you any thoughts that you'd like to share that work for you or maybe um, not work for you or when it when it starts to get very stressful. Um, I've literally just left the building and gone for a walk um, just to try and clear the air and try and get, get away from the noise of what's going on. Um, and as I've said uh, about not sweating the small stuff, is trying to figure out, and, and, and is the stress that's been created actually 
proper stress or has it been manufactured? There's a lot of personalities that can create a stress that um, is just not necessary. The certain certain personalities will create a stress like that, and I will I will certainly try and stop that as quickly as I can because it it stress infects it, it's infectious, um, and certainly if it's on in a public environment in an open floor, um, you need to try and shut that down. So I'll try and bring somebody into a room and try and say, okay, let's just talk through this, what are the concerns, um, and try, try and calm them down. Um, but, but yeah, it's just trying to keep in the moment, trying to um, see what the bigger picture is, what, what's the goal, and what is truly going on here? What do we truly need to do um, to get through this situation? Interesting. Final question. Five words to describe your career to date. Um, challenging and at times hard, um, most definitely. Um, it's, it was competitive. Um, and I would say it was more competitive on not so much on the internal side where you know, you're trying to win a position over somebody else, but in in the business development of growing a business and going out and and competing with our competitors to to land that client, um, and that was a large part of what I had to do for fifteen odd years. I enjoyed it at times <laughs> when when you won, um, but then there was the ones that you lost and and who is it that said you, you learn more from your losses than your wins um, so it was definitely a competitive career um, international so I'm very grateful that I've had a career that has opened my eyes to the world uh, both in terms of where I've been, been able to physically travel but also in who I've been able to interact with from every continent on the planet. Um, I'm being lucky to visit a lot of those as well, which I feel if I hadn't taken that step to come to Bermuda for the couple of years in 1996, my, my life wouldn't have turned out anywhere like it is. I wouldn't have seen anywhere uh, the number of places on the planet that I have done. So definitely international. It's been fun. I've worked with a lot of fun people. Um, and I like working, working with fun people. Um, and then last one is, might sound a bit odd, but just personal growth. I think having gone through my career and everything that I've, I've done, the variety of it, the way it has developed over the 25 years, um, I'm definitely different as a person. And I, I feel I've grown as a person. Um, and, and I'm very thankful for the opportunities that I've had to, to, um, to have had those experiences and hopefully learn from most of them, if not all of them. <laughs> Killian, listen, that was absolutely fabulous. Thank you so much for sharing, uh, sharing, sharing your, 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 your story and, 
I think there's lots more stories that 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 maybe would come up for maybe with a glass of wine, the America's Cup, and uh, and and other areas. But I think for anyone listening in, will certainly get a sense of go for it, uh, bet on yourself, and don't be don't be afraid to say I don't know, but I can learn. Exactly. Well, thank you very much for the um, for the opportunity to have a chat. Yeah, you're 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 very welcome. Thank you for listening to the Career Scoop, brought to you by Elevate Career Advice and Elevate Executive Selection. Dublin and Bermuda. I'm James Fitzsimons and I hope you have enjoyed listening. Hope you tune in next week for more episodes. Bye.